we are going to see far more augmented reality being used. We're going to see virtual reality being used in other ways. We're going to see events. We're going to see experiential marketing taking on. So um, when we're talking about selling direct to consumers, we're going to talk about pop-up. We're going to talk about putting wine in the context with other products. So there's a lot more going on. Hello, everyone. This is Sid Patel. Welcome to the Wine, Whiskey and Weed Show. Today, my guest is Robert Joseph. Robert has been in the wine industry for many years and wears a lot of hats. So, Robert, welcome to the show. Great to be here. Thanks again for your time. Uh, could you please uh, give an introduction about yourself to our audience? Because I know that you always have something on your plate and you're, you're just changing hands. So just, just give us uh, what you're working on and your experience, please. Well, I'll just go through the experience first very briefly. I, I guess I'm more exper- I have a broader experience, maybe not deeper but than, than many people, because I grew up in the, in the on-trade, the on-premise trade, because my parents had a hotel, so I learned about, um, and that's where I fell in love with wine. And I um, basically got involved with, with serving wine there and choosing and so on. Then went to live in Burgundy. So I learned a bit about uh, making wine and um, how wine is made in small estates in Burgundy. Came back, started uh, a magazine called Wine International Magazine in the UK and got very involved in the early days of the Australian uh, export boom and looking at uh, some of the earlier days of, of um, even California, Australia, um, sorry, New Zealand, Chile, and so on. This is in the 1980s. And I started something called the International Wine Challenge, which became the, the, the biggest wine competition in the world, and um, wrote a few books, um, which have, have, have done okay over the years. And then um, in, and I had a newspaper column, but then by in 2005, I decided it would be quite interesting to get really to see how you could actually make uh, wine, but more specifically to create a wine brand. And so with a couple of partners, we started a brand called Le Grand Noir, which is a French, uh, very new world style French wine brand, which we now sell about uh, 3.5 million bottles. About half of it goes to the US, but we're in about 50 other countries. And um, it's, 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 it's doing reasonably well. We have another brand that we're working on at the moment called Greener Planet, which is organic. And I'm just completing um, a book at the moment on the future of the wine uh, industry, um, which I think is, is going to go through and is going through some very big changes, which I think are, are going to be um, quite shocking in many ways for the industry as, as it discovers um, how the world is changing. Mm-hmm. Super. I mean, I always admire you know uh, the vision that you have normally, and you, you do have a good uh, neck on what's happening in the around the world. I mean, because you, you actually have seen you at many events as well. You know, you, you do go in what's happening and you really are touching, you know, a lot of different cultures. I mean, you know, you, you know, when we last chatted, you spoke about China as well. You spoke about innovation, which was fascinating. So I, think, a, uh, I think why is it? I mean, I think we forget um, <clears throat> just on the one hand, you know, we, we take it for granted that we can sit in New York or London and drink wine from, from Austria or, or, mm-hmm. or, or Uruguay. But in fact, there are, there are both uh, things that are the same across the world and things that are, are very different. And we don't necessarily see um, how things are moving at different speeds in different places. Absolutely. I think especially, you know, uh, like China has so many different models which people can easily uh, take advantage of in the even mature markets like U.S. which have I think that's very still. true. But I also think the U.S. market is also now on a route 
of its own that isn't necessarily um, understood in other countries. Mm -hmm. Yep, absolutely. So let's let's dive into this. Uh, what are the you know five areas that you think you know uh, innovation is happening where actually wineries can now start paying attention to? Well, I think the first thing is um, let's start from from in no particular order, but climate change and the. I think that the effect that climate change and sustainability and all the other things, it's now become part of the conversation. Now, that may not be the case for everyone, and we have politicians in many countries who are um, not as supportive of it, but it is now part of the conversation, and it's going to become increasingly part of the conversation. So how does that affect wineries? Well, it's going to affect wineries in various ways. A, obviously, um, if they're not already being affected by um, Rising, rising temperatures, but also shortage of water, risk of fire. Um, but more particularly, and this is where the fires come in, the fires and floods, we're going to see more variability of climate. And um, we're seeing that already all over the world, where, where um, people who remember I mean, in Europe, in the old days, you'd say, oh, yes, my father used to say, my grandmother used to say, if it rains on this date, we'll get this weather in three weeks' time or four weeks' time. Whatever. And it was remarkably reliable. You know, it didn't work all the time, but by and large, the old wives' tales kind of worked. Those same producers are saying, no, nothing is predictable anymore. We have no idea of how one year is going to turn out. And we're seeing, I've been looking at the English wine industry, and we're talking about variable variability of yields from six um, hectolitres per hectare to 35 um, within in, in a decade, up and down. How do you run a business that way? Well, one of the things that, that, that's coming out of that, and we've seen that in, in the States, we've been seeing elsewhere, um, is the move towards multi-regional uh, blends. So essentially, when one region is, is, has got problems with climate, True. we'll be blending one I, I was just about to say else. that like a diversification can be one, one uh, angle where you own little vineyards in different hemispheres and maybe... Maybe that can be a little way to go about or, or, or maybe you don't own vineyards. Maybe you're just buying grapes, yeah. which is probably more <laughs> to the point. But my, my point about this, and I'll come back to why, I'll come back to other reasons for doing this. But it's for, for certainly for climatic reasons, it's interesting. Um, but also climate change is going to be relevant in terms of the way we communicate. Um, because if our um, customers care about it, um, how are we relating to it? So when I pull up at a winery, um, talking to the wineries we deal with in France, for example, um, it's pretty windy where we are. So I'm thinking, well, um, we should be uh, getting wind power, but how, where do we put the windmill? And to be honest, the, 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 we should be putting the windmill where people can see it. Um, we should have solar panels where people can see them um, and make a thing of it because <clears throat> we are actually making a statement to our, um, we're not doing it for, this is, you're not doing it for greenwashing, you're not doing it to, for, for marketing reasons, you're doing it actually as part of uh, an effort um, to, to contribute to the, to the, the struggle against um, what is a catastrophe. But there's no reason why you should not also tell your customers you're doing it and show them that you're on the same side as at least um, a lot of them. So I think that's, that's going to be something we're going to see uh, more of. So on the one hand, it is um, actually using uh, fruit from a broader range of places, and that will be relevant to the bulk market, um, which obviously you know a lot about, but also um, at, a, at, a, at a micro uh, level, um, what kind of packaging are you using? Are you using lightweight bottles? Are you, what sort of cardboard are you getting? How are you shipping the stuff? And so on. And we're going to see a lot more 
um, of that going on. And that will also be relevant to the bulk market because it may make more sense to be shipping the wine in bulk and bottling it, or not even indeed bottling it, putting it into kegs or other forms of containers when it arrives. So that's one, it's a large uh, subject we, we may come back to. Um, political challenges. Um, in the last few uh, months, we've been hearing quite, quite a lot. If, if champagne producers are threatened with um, 100% uh, tariff um, by the Trump administration, well, actually, that, that's gone away. It hasn't really gone away. It's just been... Um, it's been shelved. We have a truce. Basically, um, President Macron backed down on um, his digital tax, and so Trump has backed off from the 100% tax at the moment. But what people are not talking about is we already have a 25% tariff um, on uh, various European wines. And that is, it makes a huge difference. If you're shipping, and the point about this, and a lot of people outside this situation don't know, if you're shipping $100,000 worth of wine, for example, it arrives um, in the U.S. Within 10 days, the importer has to pay $25,000 to the government. And, you know, that means he's got to have a lot of cash suddenly sitting there. It also has a very uh, clear implication on the price point. So, you know, if you've got a wine that's, that's a $10 wine, suddenly it's, it's potentially going to be $10, $12 wine. It's going to be pushed over into the $15 plus category, which will have a huge effect, and that obviously goes up the scale. Um, but I think there's something that, that lies behind this, because you know, this will affect um, all sorts of producers. It will affect importers and distributors who rely on those wines. But the thing about it is it's partial. So you know, for some reason or other, whilst the 100% um, tax is going to be on sparkling wines, the 25% tariff leave sparkling wines out because of lobbying, I think, that, 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 that kept them out. Um, and it also was, it didn't affect, um, I think Italian wine was left out, but French wine um, was in, for argument's sake. So at any point, you now, um, and these are, these are tariffs that are being applied because of taxes on tech or on Airbus and, and Boeing subsidies and so on. Nothing to do with, with our industries. True. I think, but this kind of thing will always. Uh, I think it's a new norm. I think one should accept that. You know, I, I personally don't see it going. I just see it more and more now. Uh, I think trade will soon get leveled up. Looks like that. But the problem that that is very relevant, particularly to the wine industry, that the spirits industry has better margins than the wine industry, mm -hmm. um, which is the reason. I understand, but but I think there will be new markets where maybe you know Brazil will open up or China will open up free trades, and there will always be an arbitrage. But my problem with it is that if we're now treating um, tariffs as as a as a form of warfare, um, it's all very well. I can open up a I can open up Brazil tomorrow, but I don't know that when my water when my wine is actually on the on the water on its way to Brazil, that overnight the Brazilian government, for example, might not slap a tariff on, and that's the sort of thing when you say a new norm. Um, the, the, the spirits industry generally, historically, has been largish companies with larger margins and with more cash in the bank. So potentially um, a Diageo or a Pernod Ricard could say, um, okay, well, we're just going to pull that million-dollar sponsorship um, that we we're going to do, and we'll, we'll, we'll have to put that money into supporting the tariff or whatever. Um, in the wine industry, our margins are tiny. Our marketing budgets are tiny. So, um, you know, it's an awful lot of people who have not got the financial means 
to sustain this kind of situation. And I think we're going to see a lot of, uh, if this, this carries on, as we've seen, I think we're going to see quite a lot of casualties. Um, I'd like you, to, you asked about the five things, so I'll carry on. The next one, I think, is distribution. And that ties in with what I've just been saying. Because you know, you're gonna you're gonna have to have you know, you're gonna have bigger and bigger producers and you're having bigger and bigger distributors. And you're seeing that especially in the US where so many of the of the um, distributors are swallowing each other. Um, and you know, unless you're with a big guy, you, you've got to be with a very nimble small guy. And the guys in the middle are not in a good place. And that is also true in terms of the wine uh, producers. If you are um, producing 5,000 cases at a high, a high price, you may do pretty well and do a lot of it in direct sales, and you, you may actually have, have a nice business. It might be a, a huge business, but it might be a nice, sustainable business. If you're doing 200,000 cases and you've got good distribution in a lot of countries and so on, um, you, again, may have a nice business. But I think that the 10, the 20,000 cases um, 12 bottle case winery um, competing with the big guys and competing with the small guys is in a tricky uh, place um, and I don't see that necessarily getting any easier I think it's going to get harder now we've seen in Bordeaux it's a good example here Bordeaux had 20,000 chateaux in the 1980s that dropped to 7,000 um, near 6,700 it's now down to 5,800 and a prediction I've given last week is that it will be 3,500 within the next three years. Now, I think 3,500 is still too many. But, but every single one of those, you know, it's a family, or there's something, there's people who work there and so on. Um, you know, th th there's a social cost to this. And um, I think the wine industry is going to have to learn uh, far more about branding um, obviously, the new world where most wineries are much younger by definition and, and have potentially had to raise the money to start the business and so on are far cleverer in this sort of uh, respect. But branding and distribution and margins are the sort of things that are going to have to have far more uh, in-depth understanding than, than, than we've seen. But my feeling is that we're going to see something quite dramatic happening in, in distribution. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think more and more tools and platforms, you know, people will have to use, yeah. uh, and and I think more direct to consumer. I mean, that's that's all they. Well, when we say direct consumer, what does that mean? Does it mean uh, it can be direct to retail? Can be direct to, but pretty much they're controlling. In, in summary, yeah. what I'm trying to say is they control the whole show end to end. Yeah. Well, we, that's right. when I say because when we say direct consumer, most people are kind of think that it's people coming to my winery and signing a piece of paper at the winery or whatever. And I think that's going to be true, certainly true, and wine tourism is definitely going to be um, uh, increasingly important. But it's also going to be buying wine um, through the online platforms, be it Amazon. Um, yes, okay, in the States there are rules that say what Amazon can and can't do for wineries, but that's not necessarily true in other markets. Um, so in other markets, a winery can sell its wine directly to Amazon. But we're going to see, and I'm saying, <clears throat> we're going to see um, people buying wine through Facebook, through Google, and potentially through Siri on Apple and Bixby on, um, on Samsung, in the sense that uh, we've seen something, I've seen a lot of this in China, where China has, has evolved from social media to what we're calling social commerce. And social commerce is a, is a completely um, barrierless world where you're talking to people and you're buying stuff all in the same world. 
And WeChat is the, is the place where this happens most obviously. WeChat is absolutely enormous. Um, uh, it has as many, it has half as many users as, as Facebook that makes a, a huge amounts of money. We're talking about a billion users. But what happens within um, WeChat, and the first thing to say about it, is that you don't have to download apps. The apps are essentially, um, you can use almost any kind of, and the apps sit within the system, so you don't have to clutter up your phone with lots of apps. But, but it works within WhatsApp-type groups, very large groups. So I might be within a group, and I might say, um, what is TANAT, for example, because I've heard of TANAT. Somebody's going to say to me, oh, TANAT's a grape. It's grown in Uruguay, and it's grown in France. And I'm going to say, where can I buy some? And somebody say, well, go across to this shop. The point about the shop is it's in WeChat. And I'm within the conversation. I've gone from the conversation to a shop within WeChat, which might belong to a distributor in my region, but it might also belong to a Uruguayan TANAT producer and who actually has a shop in that, a virtual shop, effectively, within WeChat. I will then buy some uh, wine from him that's been recommended by this person I've been talking to in WeChat. I will pay with WeChat money, and it will be delivered to my home. Now, WeChat, there's no warehouse. WeChat doesn't have a warehouse full of wine any more than I think Facebook will have a warehouse full of wine. But bear in mind that Amazon, some of the stuff we're getting, a lot of the stuff we're getting from Amazon doesn't necessarily come from the Amazon warehouse. Amazon facilitates um, the purchase and the delivery. So <clears throat> I see those platforms um, moving increasingly into this world. And why do I see that happening? Firstly, because particularly Facebook and, um, and Google, but particularly Facebook, is under huge fire at the moment for um, what's happened on elections and privacy use and so on and so forth, which depending on the outcome of the US elections, but also elsewhere, there are lots of, of calls for Facebook to change its business model or even to be uh, broken up. Um, to actually adopt the Chinese model where the money is being made from transactions, um, even though it's in, in micropayments, is a very interesting uh, option for them. And we're already seeing um, Zuckerberg's interest in this through the, the fact that people can now buy stuff through Instagram. You see a dress on Instagram, a picture on Instagram, you hit the button and you buy it. So that, I think, is going to be a, a big change. But what does it mean for the, for the um, drinks industry? Well, actually, in many ways, it's going to be worse than what we've got at the moment. So if we've gone, I'll explain why. So the previous, once upon a time, we had shops before we had supermarkets, and everyone forgets we've only had supermarkets since the 1940s or 50s. Before that, we were reliant on the man, usually a man, man or woman behind the desk, giving us the counter, giving us what we wanted. Um, and they, they basically, we couldn't see it. It all came from the store downstairs. So I'd say, can I have a bottle of this? Yeah, and I think there are still a lot of stores in the downtowns and suburb, I mean, some areas like that. But that's really the past. We then went into self-service stores. Um, the states were, they were, they were invented in the U.S. And suddenly we have the, the, the shelf and I can see the label, I can see the price, and I can compare the prices and labels. That was a huge jump for the wine industry that's not really been appreciated how much effect it had on, on the industry. The next stage beyond that was the website. Now, the interesting thing about the website, and again, it's not really been appreciated sufficiently, is um, whereas in the store, you've got one big shelf, and yes, you've got some shelves that are better placed, more obviously placed than others, and you've got the bottom shelf and the top shelf, 
but basically anyone standing in the store can see all of the bottles reasonably easily. On the website, you've got essentially the home page, and beyond the home page, where do you go? So if my wine is on page six of this um, website, unless I've gone looking for Uruguayan Tanat or particular wines, I may never find it. So basically, I've got to pay to be on the home page. And that is where we're going increasingly, <clears throat> we will be going in terms of with the new platforms. Now, WeChat, um, when I talk to them, they expect a marketing budget for everything they sell, which is um, cosmetics, white goods, and so on, of around 20%, minimum, actually. That is not very um, surprising to a spirits brand. Um, that's not very surprising to a sparkling, to a, a sparkling wine or champagne brand. They are very used to um, having that kind of margin to play with in terms of promotion. Um, most wine companies have nothing like that. So I was with um, interviewing uh, a uh, big French producer last um, week of, of regional, of high-level regional wines. Their marketing budget across the board is between three and four percent. So how are they going to pay for visibility? They are going to be relying entirely on people going to look for them because True. they're not going to be in people's eye line. I mean, people will have to, for sure, build inbound and brand. That, that just boils down to brand, right? Yeah. Storytelling and a strong brand, be it small or big. What, what, one more thing I, well, I just wanted to point out, Robert, is I was uh, in a chat uh, with Tim Han Henai, uh, who worked uh, for some big brands, right? So the Berenger, I remember, Tim. Yeah. Correct, right? So one of the studies they did for a supermarket was, I was fascinated by this uh, when he told me, is when a shopper buys wine and puts it in the basket and checks out in supermarket, the average sale of that checkout is 3.5 times more than the one without wine. Okay, so there are a lot of, lot of powerful muscles trying to stop this direct-to-consumer uh, plays. And the moment, I mean, Amazon understands that, and I'm sure they do that once they, uh, their consumers is buying wine or beer from their commerce sites, you know, they just have a longer and stronger and bigger checkout stories and bills and relationships i mean it's just a matter of time because consumers are hanging there and they know that a wine drinker is just going to increase their overall relationship roi of that customer yep i get that entirely um so that was that was very interesting and and that is sort of one of the behind the scene reasons why supermarkets are paying so much for this uh you know companies to fail like not allowing alcohol on those sites but I think the point about it is that globally, um, people use supermarkets because they're easier than going to six stores or to go you know, to go to the meat store and the fish store and the vegetable store and the whatever store. That was the, the reason why supermarkets became um, so popular was they made everything easier. It was a one-stop shop. The but if you think go, on, a, on a macro, uh, Robert, just sorry yeah. to interrupt, but just one thought came. Like if you think like it, this generation, let's say under 40 or whatever you want to call it, they are never going to go to supermarket. They are used to this clicks. That's so eventually, right point, it's, it's just going to come. Yes. That, and in China, that is precisely... China and India, I think, is the other place where we're seeing it. These are countries where, just as people who may never have had a phone with a wire into the wall, their first phone is a mobile, and their first purchasing is, 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 is mobile as well, literally through their mobile. 
And that moves us on to something else that I'm expecting to see more of, which is literally, and we're seeing this, and again, we tend to look at wine and we look at wine separately from beer and spirits, which we shouldn't, but we look at all three of them separately to other products. We are going to be scanning and buying. We are going to be pointing our phones or our watches or whatever it's going to be at stuff. And when I say stuff, it could be um, a, a pair of glasses, it could be um, a piece of cheese, whatever it is. We, we, the, the, the system will recognize what it is and it will get it to us seamlessly. And that is going to affect wine because effectively the problem with it is it overlooks the brand. I don't have a relationship with the brand. I like what I'm drinking. I scan it. It arrives. I never know what it's called. So that, that, is, <clears throat> that is going to be a dangerous area um, in a world where, and you talk about brand building, <clears throat> it's all very well to talk, about, to, 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 to talk about brands, but if we have villages in, in, in Europe particularly with 300 different producers all producing the same wine from the same village, with a, all of whom are being pulled, or most of whom are being, being pulled down on price by the cheapest. Um, they don't have any money to build a brand, and there are, um, there are 300 of them, and they're all competing with each other. So that, that, that is a problem. They're not going to build brands. They are going, or most of them will not be able to build brands. The best of them, the, the most successful of them, will be able to, but the others will <clears throat> will fall by the wayside, and they will, as just as I said in, in Bordeaux, um, they will eat each other up and be eaten mm -hmm. by bigger by bigger companies. Agreed. So let, let's say, how do you how how can you tell wineries to, you know, start thinking about this kind of things, change the mindset, increase the margins to digest the the things, you know, uh, what what how, where do they start? Well, I think the first thing is your business, the business plan, which maybe you, you never had a business plan because you inherited the business from your dad or your, your, your granddad. Um, now let's start with the business plan and say, right, we are going to need money. We're going to need cash. So can we do that? How do we do that? We're going to need to do that by building in margins. Or if you don't money. have cash, increase the margins. <laughs> yeah. So how do we do that? So the moment we start saying, um, I'm going to, my current wine is now selling for $5 and I now want to sell it for $10 or $20. How do I do that? Well, that may force me to change, uh, I will force me to change my, my, my model in terms of the packaging, uh, obviously the product itself uh, and the distribution, because it may well be that if my, um, if I'm making the same wine as all my neighbors are selling for $5, I can't just actually say, right, it's the same stuff, but I'm going to charge $10 for it. So I'm going to have to make it differently. Now, does that mean that I'm going to call it something different? Um, it, it, am I going to, now you're seeing in Europe, for example, um, a move, uh, a growth in, in uh, France, for example, from the villages and the Appalachians to um, Vin de France, where you could come, you're, you're not restricted by the um, the local rules and you can do what you like. And that's something that we're seeing, for example, in California, what Dave Finney did with the prisoner um, was precisely this, because when he created the prisoner, instead of saying, right, I'm just going to make another Cabernet Sauvignon or another uh, Pinot Noir or Chardonnay, he went out and made a multi, -re a, a blend across Napa originally, which were all the grapes he could get at the time, which I think was Zinfandel and Cabernet and Charbono and God knows what. And he put a high price on it with a, with a very striking label. And the prisoner grew into, from, from being a Napa 
blend. It grew into a California blend. And then one day, suddenly, Dave Finney is selling the prisoner for $40 million with no winery or, and no, um, and no uh, land. So, you know, he, that, I like that strategy, he, he creating, that starting with Napa pricing. And then it went on beyond that when the NASM bought it for 40 million, resold it for 285 to Constellation. Um, but basically, what Constellation was buying was the equivalent of a spirits brand as wine yeah. because it was yeah, scalable. A lot of margins. It had great margin, it was scalable. Now, you've seen LVMH has recently bought. Um, Whispering Angel, or, the, or the, 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 the domain behind Whispering Angel in Provence. So again, there, um, uh, Sacha Lachine, Frenchman, um, went into Provence, which was, Provence was a region which, which sold rosé, which wasn't that exciting at the time, that wasn't necessarily viewed all over the world, and it wasn't necessarily all that good, it was getting better. And he said, right, I'm going to turn, I'm going to take um, a, a place that's making um, Fords, and I'm going to turn them into BMWs. I'm going to have a BMW. And so he created a $100 rosé, um, his top rosé, and out of that, he then um, effectively opened the door for Whispering Angel, which is a very good high-margin rosé, and the volumes are huge. And everybody likes being involved with, with Whispering Angel, which is why LVMH has got involved. LVMH, which was also... Um, similarly involved with the New Zealand wine, um, Cloudy Bay, which again is a high margin New Zealand Sauvignon Blanc. So for a winery, the question is, how can I be the Whispering Angel or how can I be the Cloudy Bay is, or how can I be the prisoner? Now, the difference there between those three is that the prisoner was an innovative product. It was a blend that people hadn't seen with an innovative label. Uh, Cloudy Bay was of its region and so on. But at the time, Marlborough, um, Sauvignon Blanc, um, wasn't an appellation that the world knew anything about, um, but it was effectively a, de a denominated region. Um, and whereas um, you then look at uh, Western Aim from Provence, which is a, a classic French region that everybody kind of knows a bit about. But in each of the three cases, they have transcended their region and transcended the norms of their region to be able to charge more. And the moment they're charging more, they've been able to put the marketing behind it. So you have, my, my problem with the wine industry generally is you have a vicious uh, circle where I might, the price of my wine is dragged down by the cheapest wine in my region. So I don't, and I'm, I'm selling wine through supermarkets who will say to me, um, I will only pay you you want $7, but I'm only going to pay you $5 because you've got lots of neighbors who are selling wine for, for, for $4 or $5. I am pushed down to $5, at which point I don't have any money to build the brand. Yeah, but I think, you, I mean, I understand, but I think you can always try 100% margin direct to consumer or a same juice and different label. Uh, you know, I've, I speak from experience. Like I've done exact same juice for seven seventy seven and eleven ninety nine, and sometimes you can get away with it. The point that I said is, it's, it's very easy to say this stuff because I do a lot of consultancy. It's very easy to say this stuff, but if I'm selling a hundred thousand cases through supermarkets, mm -hmm. um, I cannot switch overnight. No, I get it. Um, I just so want to. How do I? I just so wanna, the question uh, is, you, 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 how do you evolve your business? Exactly. So I want to give them the how. I want to just not like I, there is a problem. Yeah. So 
what do we do? You know, like this, yeah. these are some cases where you can put the same juice with a different price. You can try different distribution routes and start diversification, right? But it may need to be at that whole, at that point, it may be, and, and again, in the new world, people are a lot better at this. It may well involve um, creating um, new brands because you're, you're, if your brand is associated with a $5 wine, you can't necessarily, and it's very, I mean, this is one of the classic things, this is very hard to trade up. Gallo tried to um, trade up within your own brand. Gallo tried to, in, to, to introduce reserve wines yeah. at the top level. Even Yellowtail tried, it did not work, right? Failed. So, I mean, yeah, there will always be, what I think is what we're both on the same page technically, we should write down the problems and then we should attack the problem with a, a, a strategy. I mean, yeah, period, you know? Yes, I mean, there's no, there's no mystery to it, except the wine industry tends to be very bogged down in the product. And the, whatever the product is, it, it could be natural wine or it could be uh, industrial wine or whatever. Um, it, we're not very good at putting ourselves in the shoes of the consumer. And why are they buying this product? Why are they buying wine at all? And why, you know, why, where and where, how? So we're just saying... In fact, we don't even respect the, con the consumer sometimes. You know, we just say that they buy yellow tail uh, and it's shit wine we, yes. we have to start respecting the consumer precisely and it, basically the one thing we that's important is we, we don't think um that the consumer who's buying yellow tail doesn't think they're buying shit wine uh, there's a british a very clever british advertising man who um if we remember um hillary clinton's unfortunate reference to the, to the deplorables um Essentially, the wine industry is a bit like that. The wine industry says, oh, God, anyone who buys Yellowtail, anyone who buys um, Hearty Burgundy or whatever it is, is an idiot. Um, well, you don't do that. You sensibly, car manufacturers don't go, anybody who buys a Honda is an idiot. You know, the Toyota doesn't say Honda buyers are idiots. Toyota says, buy the Toyota. And we've got to get a lot better, and Toyota, uh, or whichever company you want to say, is looking at why is the other guy, why, why is the buy, guy buying the Honda? What have we got to do with the Toyota to make him want the Toyota more than to buy another Honda? And the wine industry, and that, it, that, that can be uh, down to packaging, because one of the things we forget is that we are a product where people do not know what it tastes like when they buy it generally. And so what we have to do is give them the confidence in packaging to make them feel that they are going to enjoy it. Mm -hmm. Super. So I think uh, that's about it uh, from my side, Robert. You've given, uh, you've shared some great perspectives. I think people can just listen to this again and again and try and analyze uh, where, you know, the problems are and sort of Attack them one by one. Thank you. The thing and I what, haven't talked about, Sid, though, is one thing I would add on is communication, because that's going to be something that's going to evolve hugely. We're going to see um, the idea, and we're still seeing, and I, I used to be a wine critic, um, we still see the industry believing that the answer to their problems is um, just, you know, give some wine to the critics and sit back. And it used to work, to be fair. You know, you, you, you got your 95 points or whatever it was, and, and you, you, did, you did fine. That's no longer the case. Today's generation like to make their own discoveries. Um, they're not, they're not as, as driven by the points as they were, but the points still work, but they're not nearly as effective as they were. And we're seeing people want different kinds of information delivered in different ways. So we are going to see far more augmented reality being used. 
We're going to see virtual reality being used in other ways. We're going to see events. We're going to see experiential marketing taking on. So um, when we're talking about selling direct to consumers, we're going to talk about pop-ups. We're going to talk about putting wine in the context with other products. There's a lot more going on, but whatever we're, we're talking about, the, the quality and the style of the wine, as far as I'm concerned, is just the starting point. If you haven't got that right, then go home um, and give up. Right, yeah. Agreed. So I think communication is always, has always been important, will always be important. It's just where are they consuming the content and are you communicating in the way they are consuming? 